Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. You're listening to the COVID-19 special episodes. This podcast is about effective learning and effective teaching. And now we all have to do this with a new wrinkle provided by COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, which is sweeping the world in a pandemic, the likes of which we have not seen since AIDS, polio, and the 1918 Spanish flu. As a result of COVID-19, many universities, colleges, and K-12 schools have either closed down or moved to distance learning, which, for most teachers, means going online. In this special COVID-19 series, we'll unpack some of the major issues teachers and students are facing, as well as ways to deal with these issues. Now, please note, we are not going to pull punches here. We are going to be direct and blunt about what can be done and what cannot be done. We're not going to be able to tell you how to keep things just the way they used to be. That is not possible. So with that in mind, let's move forward. This is our 16th episode in the series, Revisiting Engagement. In our fourth COVID episode, we offered some suggestions for how to keep your students engaged now that classes are going online. Caitlin Tucker offers eight additional methods to keep students engaged in online classes, and we'll link to her page in our show notes. All the techniques and tools that we're talking about here, if there's a link, it'll be in the show notes for this episode. So credit where credit is due. This entire episode is largely based on Caitlin Tucker's article, and we want to give her credit for that. So she offers, as I said, eight different methods. And the first one is an exercise called sort it out. If you've ever used concept mapping in your classroom, this basically takes concept mapping and makes it digital. The idea behind it is to say, here's a list of ideas from the chapter or from the lesson or whatever. How do they go together? Tucker suggests Google Draw for this kind of exercise. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Google Draw provides a virtual whiteboard where you can save what you've done as a Google Draw document, which can then be turned in with a link as well. You can use the shapes and arrows tools to create concept maps pretty quickly, then diagrams, and you can also create organizational charts. We recommend practicing how to use Google Draw a few times so you can quickly do things like make shapes transparent and thicken lines on arrows so that they're easily visible and doing a demonstration with your students so they can learn the basics of the program as well before they try to do anything with it in real time. Another exercise is one that Tucker calls the online fishbowl. In this exercise, you split the class into two groups, group A and group B. Then you present a problem or activity that group A gets to work on. While they do that, group B makes notes, writes down observations, and documents the comments and questions group A generates. Tucker suggests they record these observations in a Google Doc. The teacher's job is to set a timer for how long group A gets to work on it before their time's up. Tucker suggests about five minutes or so. Once the timer goes off, let group B share what they saw with group A. It might be a good idea to appoint a speaker for each group for this part of the exercise. Once you've done that, switch the group's roles. Now. Group B does the work on the same question or problem, while Group A takes notes and writes down observations. When the timer goes off, Group A gets to share while Group B listens. 
Now, one way I plan to use this for my students is to have them observe how the other group is carrying out their work. What are they noticing about how the other group divides up the work, makes sure each part of it gets done, and shares it within the group. And I think this will really bring students' attention to how they do group work and how to improve those processes, which is always an issue for students, whether they're online or off. Now, a third method that Tucker suggests, it's called expert group investigations. Online, we are all running short on time because for many people, creating online classes takes longer and it may not cost more in terms of money, but it certainly costs more in terms of time and energy. So in this method of expert group investigations, students become responsible for conducting research on various class topics and curating the sources they find online. So it's their job, for example, to find the main causes of the Civil War and put together a bank of sources that back up what they've said. They can present their work in Google Slides, which is like PowerPoint or a Google Doc. The goal is for them to become experts on the topic or concept that they've been assigned and then to collaborate with each other to create a presentation to get their findings and sources across to the rest of their classmates. These presentations can be recorded on video using YouTube or they can be presented as a document through Google Docs or they can be presented in real time during a Zoom class session. The fourth method is called collaborative annotation. Take a piece of reading you've assigned the class, put it into a Google Doc, and have the students annotate it in the Google Doc. Tucker suggests putting the reading into the right-hand column of a two-column chart and allowing students to highlight words or phrases from it, then annotate in the left-hand column. This also allows students to chat with each other in the Google Doc using the chat function and leave comments on each other's annotations using its comment function, which makes this a less individual and more group-centered method of creating engagement among students. And I already do a version of this with an assignment I call collaborative notes. So students get a list of here's all the lectures in a unit. And they have to define one term from each lecture in each unit on a Google Doc page that I've created for that unit. So if there are seven lectures, they'll have seven headers. You know, here's lecture number one, here's lecture number two, and so forth. And under each header, they have to define one term from that lecture. So seven terms total. The rules are if someone else already defined a term, you don't get to define it too. You have to choose something different. And the collaborative notes page also serves as a study guide for the students. I tell them, you're building your own class study guide so they know it's gotta be good enough for the other students to use for study purposes. They can't just half-ass something in there. And I grade it complete or incomplete. Did you define seven terms? Complete. Did you not define seven terms? If it's got seven lectures, you still have work to do. A fifth method is what Tucker calls Google Map Adventures. This gets into moving the learning from inside the classroom and out into the real world. Tucker suggests students can chart the path of a story on a map. They can connect the historical information they're learning to the geographic location where events took place. And students can use maps to design creative mathematical challenges. Using maps to show learning can be a great graphical tool. Students can also collaborate on map assignments. They can create shared maps with drop pins able to show why the area with the drop pin is important to the lesson. And I've used versions of this in my law classes because I'll have my students go to different places and describe how they see the law. So for example, maybe they go into a restaurant or a coffee shop and they have to talk about building codes or occupancy standards. Now with a lot of places closed, I might have my students choose a place on a map 
And even if they can't visit it in person, they can discuss various types of law that they think apply there if we're talking about a specific building. I also like using maps when I discuss policing and crime to show differences in neighborhoods. And I will use images from Google Maps because these pictures often really show kind of the difference between wealthier and poorer neighborhoods. You're talking about Street View? Yes, Street View. And that's, that's a really good idea because that's saying, okay, look at the building here in the nice part of town. Now look at the building here in the not so nice part of town. What are you seeing? What's different? And I could see using the Google Maps as sort of a starting launch point and then, you know, pick two places, one in a known good area of your neighborhood or of your city and one in a known poor area. Take three pictures from each on Google Street View and talk about the differences. What are you seeing that indicates poverty, wealth, the ability to care for your home or not, the ability to care for your business or not? Talk about those things. So yet another method that Turner suggests is to have students create a shared Google Doc identifying the main ideas and concepts and themes of the unit or the chapter or the lecture, and then use that list to create a Spotify or YouTube playlist that expresses those ideas or concepts in music. And this allows students to make connections between what they're learning and something they're already familiar with and enjoy. We use music already a little bit when I teach. So I'll play Symphony of Destruction by Megadeth or I'll play Worker Song by Dropkick Murphys when I'm teaching Marx in my theory classes. And what I might do is have my students come up with their own playlists for my classes or for units, because this is a way for me to connect with them on their level and to build rapport. And Adam and I will talk about building rapport with students in our next COVID episode, but learning the music that my students like and then letting them explain why the songs they chose fit for the theme of the unit or class, that treats them as peers. I get to learn from them about who they are as people in terms of their musical choices. And I get to challenge them by having them fit the music that they like into the broader class context. So you don't make them listen to Working by Devo? I don't, but I might. Oh, see, that's that would be my Mark's song, you know, Working in the Coal Mine. Another idea Turner offers is the idea of scavenger hunts. Encourage your students to do a close reading of a text or chapter, or go through a Google search to find relevant information and answers. You can give a list of things to find or search for, and students can turn in the list with links or images to back up their searches. In some senses, open book and open note tests are scavenger hunts of sorts, and that's something that I already use with my students. So I'm okay if they hunt through their notes to get a question right, because my questions are going to need them to know that information and for them to be able to work with it or analyze it. And one way I'm gonna use this, just having read this article today, is I'm gonna have students make a single eight and a half by 11 inch page of notes for their exam and have them turn in the notes along with the exam. And I'm gonna specify a couple of things. It cannot be a direct copy of the textbook. It has to be in your own words. It can't be a direct transcript of my lecture. It has to be in your own words. And you can't have more than one page. And since they'll be taking their exams open book and open note anyway, what I'm gonna do here is grade them on the quality of the notes they took using a rubric to judge the quality. So I'll have to build that rubric. And above average notes will give them three extra percentage points on a quiz. Average notes will get two percentage points and any notes will give them one. And no notes, of course, will give them zero. But this allows them maybe that way of thinking it's a little bit of extra credit, but really it's just my way of being able to analyze what were they thinking? 
How do they put their notes together? Can I talk later about, okay, so I saw a few people doing notes like this, and it looks like you just grab the definitions right out of the textbook, and you don't really understand what these terms are. And then when I look at your test, you didn't pass those because you didn't understand the terms. So let's talk about making notes that make it make sense to you instead of just writing words on a piece of paper, or in this case, in a digital format. Really, it's a way of connecting that studying to the test. It's a way of maybe connecting some of the hidden dots in studying and then learning that students don't think about. Mm -hmm. And also making those notes, that's a form of studying, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've had students say, oh, good, I get to make a cheat sheet. But just the act of making that so-called cheat sheet, that's studying, that's learning, that's organizing information, that's taking it and saying, okay, I have a eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper, or I've had some professors who will say, you get a four by six card, a larger index card. And how am I going to, you know, curate what I'm putting on this so that I know I've covered everything I need to know for the test. That's not cheating. Learning how to use information in a way that makes sense for the task that you're being set. I have to say that this push for everybody has to memorize everything is kind of unrealistic in today's society. Our students are flooded with so much information, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. So maybe we should be teaching them to curate what they learn, to kind of sort out the wheat from the chaff, to say, this is the important stuff, this is the sort of important stuff. This is the a meteor is striking the earth and, and it's never going to happen stuff. Maybe we should be doing more of that. And I would also argue that asking students to memorize not only might be next to impossible, I think it's next to useless, given that you have a world of information at your fingertips and it makes more sense to be able to work with that information and be able to work with it critically and quickly rather than relying on memory, which may fade over time. I sense a new podcast episode title. I, I think we're going to have to do more on this. Anyway, go on. Finally, Turner recommends creating online discussions. While they're the backbone of most online courses, many professors shy away from them, thinking they're sterile or boring. The way to make them not sterile and not boring, of course, is to create prompts that spark interest. For example, give students a discussion board where they can connect online to find study partners, homework help, or even just to space to vent. Create other discussion boards with questions that go beyond what are the five terms Smith uses to discuss poverty, and instead tie the lessons to their world. How do Smith's poverty terms apply to the economic situation in your city? Turner writes mostly for K through eight teachers, so she does acknowledge that some students will not be proficient at keyboarding. Well, of course not. If you're, if you're six or seven years old, you won't be. Most college students will be, They'll be very proficient at using a keyboard. But other options for these discussions include Flipgrid, which allows video discussions, and Padlet, which allows visual discussions and comments. So those are also possibilities. Now, I use the discussion board regularly because I find it's one of the best ways to allow students to express themselves online. Here's a few hints, teachers, for grading. Don't grade these on spelling or grammar because students may be accessing your course through a phone and correcting spelling and grammar on a phone is not just a pain in the rear, but it may be much more difficult for them to do. Instead, focus on the ideas in their answers. Develop rubrics for your questions. What do you want them to touch on? What do you want them to mention? What would you like to see them go into detail on in this kind of an answer? Grade based on the quality of the ideas rather than the quality or quantity of the writing. And grade these discussions on a, either a complete incomplete or a complete needs improvement incomplete basis so that they know approximately where they stand. 
So that's what we have for you in this special episode of Learning Made Easier. Please send this to other professionals and students who may be facing these issues. The easiest link to share is probably our Patreon. So if you'll go to patreon.com slash learning made easier, you'll find us. And if you're able to support us on Patreon right now, we'd really appreciate it. Please join us next time for our next COVID-19 episode, where we'll talk about how to create rapport in an online class. And we'll see you then. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.